0: Hey, it's Scott Oren of Cruise Consulting and welcome to another episode of Founders and Friends. And before we start the podcast, let's give a quick shout out to Rippling. Rippling is the new cool payroll tool that we see a lot of startups using. Rippling is great for your traditional HR and payroll. They integrate very nicely. But guess what? They did another thing. They integrate into your IT infrastructure. They make it really easy for when you hire someone to spin up all the web services and their computer, which sounds kind of like not a huge deal. But actually, we did the study at Cruise. We spend $420 on average just getting a new employee's computer up and running and their web service up and running. It's actually a really big deal, it saves a lot of money. And the dogs are eating the dog food. Like we see a lot of startups coming in The Cruise now using Rippling. So please check out Rippling. Great service. We love it. I think we have a podcast with Parker Conrad. You can hear it from his own words, but we're seeing them take market share. So shout out to Rippling. And now to another awesome podcast at Cruise Consulting's Founders and Friends. Thanks. So when your troubles are mounting, in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. Founders and Friends. and Friends with your host, Scotty oh. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orne at Cruise Consulting. And today, my very special guest is Nate Williams of Union Labs. Welcome, Nate. Hey, Scott. I'm super excited to be here. It's been great this spring to get to know
1: Cruise Consulting in more uh, detail. And I'm looking forward to having a good interactive chat. Thanks, man.
0: Appreciate it. So we before we turn on the mics, we actually figured out that we live totally parallel lives. That's so right. Can, why don't you give your quick background and then we'll make fun of each other or make fun of <laughs> ourselves. Yeah. doing things. They, during the exact same time frame. I did think it was quite interesting. Um,
1: yeah, sure. So I'm Nate Williams, I'm the managing partner and co-founder here at Union Labs Seed Stage Fund based in San Francisco. I'm from uh, New Haven, Connecticut, grew up in a small town called Cheshire outside of there. Went to school on the East Coast, started my career at JP Morgan, which I have in common with Scott in yeah. uh, the 2000 timeframe. Ended up going back to graduate school at UCLA and then the, the last 15 years of my career as an operator investor, I left uh, grad school and worked on a team at Intel that made investments around gaming, graphics, digital home. And as luck would have it, the first deal that I worked on was an investment that John Doerr from Kleiner Perkins made with Bruce Sachs from CRV in home automation called Eye Control. And so I, 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 I bit the bug, was a three-time CXO, a CRO, CMO, and COO in what they call smart home or IOT, including August Home, which was acquired, August Smart Lock, acquired by Asa Abloy, and then four home that ended up at Google. And I went back to Kleiner Perkins, actually kept in touch as I was angel investing and kept giving them periodic updates of what I was seeing as an operator and went back uh, as an EIR for a year uh, alongside Wen Shea and Mamoun Hamid. and. The the pull together of those different experiences as an operator and then as an angel investor, gave myself and my partner, Chris Kim, the catalyst to start Union. We started Union in 2019 and now we're just made our ninth investment. So we're
0: up and running, having a great time. That's awesome, congrats. You know, I didn't know you worked on iControl. My friend was CFO there, Steve Bennett, for a while, and I must have put in a couple term sheets. to I do life.
1: I do remember yeah. Steve Bennett, actually. Yeah, it's yeah. really interesting. So the company, 4Home, uh, where I was COO, was a direct competitor to iControl. Oh, so I no had way. researched iControl. I met the 4Home founding team and then joined, became the COO. We had the telecommunications customers like Verizon, and iControl had Comcast. Comcast eventually acquired iControl, and we were acquired yeah. by Sanjay Ja at Motorola. And so I became That's effectively the you know, like the CMO of Motorola's set top box group.
0: Just I heard an explain. Urban Legend. Please you either tell me this is true okay. or debunk it. That when the iControl founders were pitching John Dor, they were talking about like their distri- potential distribution channels and they named Comcast. And supposedly, again, potential Urban Legend, he hit the speakerphone in the conference room and called Brian Roberts at Comcast and said, would you, hey, is this interesting? Would you ever talk to these guys? And he said, yeah, and so the iControl guys were like, okay, we are working with you, John Doerr, thank you. You are amazing. Did that happen? Uh,
1: I can neither confirm nor deny, but I can tell you from being at Kleiner for over a year as I incubated Union and actually sitting maybe like 15 feet away from John Doerr, he has got the who's who of business, entertainment, politics, philanthropy coming in and out of his office. This was obviously prior to COVID. I yeah. A quick other story is I can neither confirm nor deny this, but when we were at uh Forhome, we were about to get acquired by Cisco. Cisco had an investment in eye control. And somehow there was a mysterious call received at the highest levels in John <laughs> Chambers' office from somebody and somehow we got acquired by Motorola and not Cisco. So oh maybe John Doerr has his tentacles in a lot of places.
0: <laughs> I that's awesome. I love it. I'm curious. So you did, so you did Kleiner Perkins and like you said, it was, it's kind of when Mamoon joined and it was kind of the third generation. You probably had like a dilemma of like, should I continue to work at Kleiner Perkins or should I start my own fun? Like what was your thought process there?
1: Yeah. It was, you know, in getting to know you, Scott and talking about some of the stuff you did at H and and post Kellogg, you know, when we came out of graduate school, venture was a different place, right? There was these mysterious and monolith names, you know, the Kleiner Perkins, the Sequoia Capital, the Charles River Ventures, the Excel partners. And so I looked at venture in a much different way than it is today. Venture has become much more democratic and you've seen this Cambrian explosion of new managers like ourselves, but they've also changed who the general partner is. So to give you an example, in the late '90s, in the early 2000s, majority of those general partners were coming from places like Cisco or NEC or Intel. They were comms, networking, really yeah. hardcore engineering. For
0: everyone invested in that, those were the industries everyone put money into. That's, that's I mean, exactly. Like, yeah, you're totally right. That's and exactly. I also feel like it was a little more, um, a little more like you had to know people, or and this could just been my perception as a younger person. You know. But especially, and we had at Lighthouse, we had an East Coast office, and especially the East Coast office was like that. You had to be like in the Boston, you know, you got to know people to and work the, adventure in venture.
1: And then 95-128, you have to know the right uh, new yeah. Dunkin' Donuts to go see a general
0: partner yeah, from CRB. Exactly. I, think I think it's kind of like that on the West Coast too, but it's it's opened up so much. It's really unbelievable.
1: I think that part, you know, venture... Is becoming a more egalitarian place clearly with you know persons of color, female. We need to do way more. But in terms yeah. of where it was, you know, that's changed. Here's something that I think is actually a negative. One of the catalysts for starting union was as we saw venture get bigger, the firms got bigger. You know, multi-billion-dollar funds, growth vehicles, opportunity funds, SPVs. Then when we look at the general partner, probably eighty percent of the general partner now in and around Sand Hill Road or in New York or Boston. Are SaaS or social mobile local? They're from Stripe, they're from Facebook, they're from LinkedIn, they're from Box, they're from Dropbox. So if you then see a company that looks like a space company, a home automation company, a, a car company, that general partner, number one, has to struggle with their partners to actually get Mindshare to approve the investment. But at the same time, it's just a different skill set. And so when we thought about union, That combination of more general partners who are SaaS, social, local, mobile, plus these seed investors like Mike Maples and others who've grown up to bigger funds created this opportunity where we can be the next generation of these hands-on bespoke general partners and build a franchise that lasts the next 20, 30, 40 years.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. Before we turn on the mics, I told you I'm friends with Charles Hudson, invested in his funds, and he was one of the first kind of pre-seed investors. And then I'm also friends with Riley Brennan, who um, I also invested in, in trucks. And that's like a category that you're that's talking exactly about. exactly right. Like, you yeah. know, that's not, I mean, there's definitely SaaS in transportation, but it's not, it's a different kind of SaaS than what most of the Sand Hill Road VCs want to invest. They want to invest in, like, like you said, you know, I don't know what, the, what you call it, but like, business automation and software. Yeah, Yeah. tools, ERP tools,
1: uh, anything that's 1 million ARR, uh, HR systems, finance systems, accounting systems, et cetera. The thing, Scott, that's interesting, if you think of the dynamic range of what we call deep tech, so you're talking about cyber, you're talking about space, you're talking about autonomy, you're talking about connected buildings, you're talking about food technology or medicine, that general partner has to basically run the gamut and it's not like you can have a LP day where you just talk about like, Hey, this is how you get a customer. This is how you run a super node. This is what your SDR should be. And so the benefit is you get moats around these businesses. If you do hard tech the right way, some of the businesses are built with a moat. The negative is it's, it's not infinitely scalable. Like you can't have 10 of the same
0: companies. It just doesn't work. That's, that's very true. Like Riley, for example, at trucks, he has an incredible transportation newsletter which basically, I mean, it's the who's who. And so he's so dialed into that subsector, you know? But like, I think every good transportation company meets with them to give them the pitch, you know? Like that's the huge advantage. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so interesting. I'm
1: glad you picked up on that, Scott. So we are in the early innings of this really well-formed, mature deep tech investing field. With some great investors, I think of Founders Fund and Coastal Ventures and Lux Capital, right? And, and Wen and Kleiner Perkins, GD. So then the question is, who are the seed funds that sort of totally. feed those A's and B's? And so what we saw was in the first generation, either hardware-specific funds that are just like, hey, we want the next Nest, or we want the next August. Or there were funds that were like, hey, we're going to take these PhDs out of Carnegie Mellon or MIT and build a company around them. We came into building union with this real belief that some of the misses are based on a lack of that API to the Fortune 1000. Like if you're building a sensor network for supply chain, you need to talk to like Prologis, UPS, you need to talk to like Nestle and understand how they're thinking about it. And so, yeah, we basically have built our firm to focus on that intersection And we're staying in contact with, you know, dozens of C-level executives at these really big companies. Hey, it's
0: Scott Orner, Cruise Consulting. And before we get back to the podcast, quick shout out to ChartHop. ChartHop is one of my favorite new SaaS tools on the market. And basically what ChartHop does is it puts your org chart in the cloud. And I always like to say, like, it brings transparency to your organization. And so, you know, everyone in your organization can see who they report to. They can see the full org chart of the company and how their group relates to to other groups. It also has a lot of information on the individuals in the company. And so you can click on the Chartop profile and just get, like, where people live, their experience, you know, Slack handles, all this kind of stuff. And it's just a really great tool. The other thing is Chartop has started doing some cool stuff around compensation and budgeting planning. And so you can actually start seeing like what the cost structure of the company look like during certain kind of scenarios. So I'm loving Chartop. Check it out. Chartop.com. We use it at Cruise. Really like it. And I can't recommend it enough. All right. Back to the podcast. Uh, you said something interesting, which, cause I, I remember like when I was a lighthouse, Kosla was always doing like real deep tech or they would do food, like they did impossible foods in yeah. Cahill, and got hill. And lucky enough to get in on that super early at lighthouse but like it was like a two million dollar investment which probably made no sense for coslas i mean they're probably doing a six or seven hundred million dollar fund at the time and they're probably doing a two billion dollar fund now but i always wondered like if those companies like impossible made it and they're a huge success but they're i always felt like there's a lot of those little guys that would get lost in a big fund which is why i think what you're doing is super interesting because you're It's like you are germinating, you're giving them the money at seed or pre-seed level and really help, you're kind of tending the garden a little bit more maybe than a big fund would, even if they put a couple of dollars in the company.
1: Yeah, I I think like anything else, it's a relay race where investors, we serve entrepreneurs and the goal is to create companies that change the world. In some cases they change the world because they're profitable and they never go public. In some cases they file an S1 and go public. And so if you think about the seed stage, we're basically the folks that that start the pipeline, help them figure out company growth, leadership, organization, yeah. product market fit. And so if you look at those set of skills, those are different than you know, some of our mutual friends who are doing mid-stage venture or late-stage private equity. In late-stage private equity, you're running a discounted cash flow, you're running sensitivity models yeah. of entry price, exit price. Early stage, I'm really sitting across from an entrepreneur and I'm you know making eye contact with him or her and sort of gauging their ability to handle ambiguity and also their, their grit because you're going to get kicked in the head a couple of times during the yeah. journey, as you know, from creating with your wife, Cruz, you're going to see some bumps and you have to persevere. So it's just two different skill sets. And so what we're saying now to our entrepreneurs, it's great to have early big investors, named investors early for relationship building. But in the Charles Hudson case, I would take a term sheet if I was an entrepreneur over Char which from Charles Hudson, then a tier one series A firm. Cause I know that Charles, number one, has the empathy of what I'm building. He's got the Rolodex when I need to raise funding to get me to a variety of other folks. Yeah. And yeah. he's gonna be more hands-on.
0: That's the, the relay race uh, analogy is perfect because you're right. Like in a way like you or Charles or Riley, And there's a bunch of other firms like like cowboy ventures and other you know oh sure when when you call a a gp at a bigger fund and say like hey i got a company for you like they're listening because they know you're like you're a big pipeline to them and you're going to send them really good deals and so they're going to really pay attention and so having like your endorsement having you kind of have helped build the company you're right like it just you cut you can cut so much friction for those entrepreneurs and getting them to the right bigger fund when it's time i think that's really cool
1: you know, you mentioned something
0: before we got started, just in terms of, you know, training and
1: education, organizational design, because of where you went to graduate school at Northwestern. So much of early stage investing is really around the HR component, right? The the, the component of people management, of structure, of motivation, and sort of just that emotional side. And a lot of founders actually know what they want to build and can build it. Where they actually need a little more help is that, hey, I'm really technical. I was at Google. I just don't know how to hire my first VP of BizDev. Yeah. Or yeah. we have one company that's doing amazing. They had a 500% year-over-year growth in revenue, but they're like, we've never scaled an organization before. We don't know how to do an offsite. So we connected them with a, with one of our executive coaches to run that process. So it's it's an interesting dynamic.
0: Hey, you're so right. And I know I, we kind of learned some of this stuff the hard way building crews. Like you don't understand how early HR needs to come into the company or how if you you have like all these super high performing young people who you typically hire early. And then as you start promoting them, sometimes they're up for it for the management, you know, role. And sometimes they're not. And you kind of learn the hard Like these are all lessons that you can learn from good advisors who are on your board like you guys. So that's that's you're, you're very, very right there. Yeah. You, just to double click on that. It's been really refreshing
1: over the past 18 months to see really well-known investors like Matt Turk from First Mark or Dan Scheinman say that the type of hires that people wait too long, number one, CFO, number two, head of people like HR person, because generally people kick that down the can and there's this sort of trope, you either make things or you sell things. But the truth is you need to go slow to go fast and if you have crappy process, when a series A comes around and I worked with Kleiner while EIR on four different kinds of investments that we co-invested together on, like if you don't have good process, it comes up in the due diligence because nothing's together. Nobody's got an invention doc signed, the cap table's all messed up. And so an ounce of prevention is probably better than what happens on the other side. I love
0: it. At Cruise, we say we help you sail through due diligence because on the finance side, and tax side, that stuff comes up too. And like, it's one thing if you're a seed stage investor and you're putting in a million dollars or $2 million in the company, but when you're running a $25 million check and it's later and the, that company had time to have fixed all this stuff and didn't, it, it's like a real big red flag. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, this is, this is pretty cool. So let's, let's. one of the things we wanted to talk about was like we both worked in kind of investing in venture capital for a while. Mm-hmm. So what are the things that have changed? And before we turn the mics on, you were talking about like, late stage and Tiger Global. And I was just talking to a reporter today about them. I don't actually know anyone at Tiger Global, but we see them like being super active. But what have you seen in the market? What have you seen like in these preemptive rounds and what like it's, it's so different to me than, than 15 years ago. You and I both have roots back to investment banking. And so we saw how
1: technology was changing banking in the early 2000s. Like it just changed there was a time we all wear suits and then there was a year they're like, okay, go casual. And then the dot-com bubble crashed and they're like, okay, go back to suits. I think they we were sitting down. I,
0: I spent my entire signing bonus for investment banking to buy like five suits because I had to have a, wear suits. And within three months of starting working there, they said we don't have to wear suits anymore. Yeah, so I, I had it. it. That happened to me. I had Brooks Brothers
1: gray suit, Brooks Brothers blue suit, yeah. pinstripe yeah. gray, pinstripe blue, whatever color shirts, and then pink tie, yeah. yellow tie, etc. Yeah. Generally speaking, the trends of the public markets start to inform what happens in the in the private market. So we both talked about, you know, I wake up in the morning relatively early, 5 30 AM, start working out, check CNBC, read the Wall Street Journal all the time. You know, companies are taking longer to go public from what was five to six years. Sure. Uh, you know, ten years ago, now it's eight to ten years, and so basically, yeah. you're seeing a lot of that value accumulation happen to late stage investors as opposed to retail public market investors. And so, I think that's that's changed how people think about risk. The other thing is, if we look at winners, right? Like we always talk about power law and like return the firm outcomes. You know, there was like unicorns. Now there's decacorns. We're seeing companies go public. I'm sitting across the street right now from Snowflake. Companies are going public, 35 billion valuation, 50 billion valuation, 70 billion. So you really pack on your winners. And so what I end up seeing now is the conversation at this sort of middle stage, if you're a series A, series B, or Series C investor, is you only have so many shots to get 10, 15, 20% ownership. So you gotta go all in. So if you have conviction it's gonna be a winner, if it's gonna be Snowflake, if it's gonna be HIMS, if it's gonna be, you know, something crazy, right? Uh, out there, like a Lavongo, you got to get in and get your ownership. And so, at that point, what's the difference of twenty-five or thirty percent more on the valuation? And so, we're seeing that fluctuation. The I up- saw
0: that. Go, I saw, saw that twice in the last two weeks, where a super brand name, Sandhill Road firm, had led kind of like a seed slash A, you know, like a ten or fifteen million, like is a big, like way bigger than a seed, but kind of a modest A these days. And then a year later, they're already preempting themselves and coming in and putting 35 million and this happened like, like back to back last week, you know? And so, but, but because they have the low cost basis on the seed or or it's like a series A, really they're able to actually, the dollar cost averaging isn't too bad when they do that preemptive round. And so I'm seeing that happen a lot, which is crazy because in the old days, you'd always have an outside firm lead around. You would never want to price your own course. LPs would never stand for it, but not anymore. Just think of
1: how fast that stuff moves though. Like you're thinking about when to strike a 409A or you're thinking about QSBS treatment. Like it just happens so fast. I would say in some cases, this environment can favor founders because they can raise capital and they're really indifferent to who the investor is. But the longer term consequences with that much leverage, and sort of undetermined past the profitability. In some cases, it only, it gives you a sense that you don't need to find product market fit and you don't I need know. to scale revenue. And so me as a person who is thinking and thoughtful, kind of a student of the game, I always wonder in the case of not enough constraints, what happens when things actually make a turn? Because you're, you're, you're used to burning, some of these companies are burning a million or two a month, like you got to go to zero burn in three months. It's gonna
0: be hard to do. I've lived that at Cruise, and that we're very capital constrained, and so we're super creative. And it's it's put us in a in a situation where we had to be really creative about how we solve problems, and we've done it. And it's like the most amazing feeling. And then I've seen some of our clients who raised tons of money, and and we're I saw this when COVID hit. Really, it was really interesting in that a lot of them still didn't quite have product market fit or didn't have enough scale in the revenue, but they're sitting on like a 200 or 300 million dollar valuation. And the the management and the VCs were kind of freaking out because this is when no one knew how long COVID was going to last. Didn't even know tech companies would be beneficiaries or not, which they turned out to be, but they were like, they knew that they could not raise another round at the kind of traction that that company was at, at that point. And so they're actually going to be forced to cut their burn despite having a ton of cash. Because like everyone around the table knew that the company was was at a standstill, which was, was so fascinating to see at a company that's like a glamorous two or three hundred million dollar, and we saw this all over. It wasn't just like one company; we saw a bunch of these companies. So that's it's what, just, it's interesting. That's why
1: those things matter, you know. Something yeah. I would say in uh, of what I learned at Kleiner Perkins is like having been a C level executive across three companies, raised you know collectively over probably one hundred fifty. 175 million of capital. I never had that experience of what happens after that partner meeting when you leave the room as an entrepreneur and the partnership gets together to talk. And so Uh, being able to peel that back and think about the type of questions. It's really interesting because in most cases, it's not really about the size of the market. It's about the ethics of the management team. It's about do they have a plan that's viable there's a lot of questions about why us, what's our value add, like why are we the best investor for them, et cetera. And so that experience for me was really helpful and also allows me now as a general partner in my firm to coach my entrepreneurs and my founders that I'm partnering with and serving to better understand you could have an amazing company. And if say, I'm just calling out you know, somebody who's a, a great entrepreneur, if I send a deal over to Satya Patel at Homebrew, Satcha might be looking at 10 deals at one time. And no matter how fundable my deal is, it just, he may have something he's more interested in. And so yeah, sometimes yeah. the entrepreneur says, oh, they didn't like my startup. Actually, it's a question of, they may just be on something else. So you have to go wider and totally. you really have to be sure you have a reason.
0: On the force, rank. That's right. That's right. You know, it's also I've always found interesting because I I had the advantage of doing nine years of partner meetings and like the ethical part of it was so important. like, are they spending money wisely? Are the milestones the companies picked or presented to us actually enough to get them funded next time? Like you talked about that relay race. And so you'd see like a series A company saying their milestones are going to be X, Y and Z to raise a series B. And meanwhile, we knew that was either enough. Or it wasn't enough, and it wasn't going to be impressive enough, and they weren't going to be able to raise a Series B. And that, like, that's a huge value add you can you can deliver to the Union Labs portfolio companies, and just helping them kind of align or pick or articulate their milestones for the next round. By the way,
1: something that's super interesting to perhaps talk with your team, Healy or others, is you know kind of a boot camp for some of these early stage, you know, teams of five or less to sort of say these are the the financial sort of dials you have to make sure you can talk about. When you go to that next funding round, because it's the same stuff, like tell us what your revenue model is, what your burn rate, like how are you thinking about dilution, right? All those things. And even if you're not a classically trained finance person, you need to have some comfort with numbers because it's a quantitative business the same way that business people need to have comfort with technology right to understand coding methodologies or different technologies that we see
0: that's such a great point we do spend a lot of time on that and we do a ton of boot camps with like those seed stage funds especially because when it comes to like you've been coaching them mm-hmm. during seed they get the series a and they're kind of conversant hopefully most of the time but seed is where like we can make an impact you can make an impact so we do a lot of that stuff and teach them and i find it really rewarding that's fantastic. Well, maybe and we should, I can't keep you too long, so I want to wrap it up here, but maybe just tell everyone how they can reach out to you. Union Labs, Deep Tech, you know, if you're building something super creative, that's not like down the SaaS fairway, they should yeah. be calling you Yeah. and how they can touch touch and, and uh, go from there. Yeah. I mean, at the highest level, we want to back
1: mission-driven founders who are deeply technical, who want to solve some of the hardest problems in the world. And generally where we see a good fit is if they're using kind of the technology stacks that involve mobility. So folks call it the IoT stack or AI machine learning, the data science stack or robotics to solve a problem. We're agnostic to industry vertical. We do things in food tech, construction, insure tech, right, smart home connected office. But we're really looking for somebody that has an earned secret that they've learned about a market where using technology can either save money reduce cost, increase revenue, safety, et cetera. And then in terms of you know where we normally play, we lead about half our deals. Our average check size is between 500K and 1.5 million. We consider ourselves an active and aligned investor. You know We want to be your first call when it comes to dealing with a hard problem, not just awesome. celebrating the victories. And one of the things that's appealing, you mentioned Charles and his fund precursor, one of the appealing things about newer funds like union is we're also founders out to prove something so yeah, we have like a that. chip on our shoulders in terms yeah. of making sure that we're doing the right things that our founders really have a high nps that you know other investors love to work with us and so you're going to see that same hustle that we did in terms of making august a successful outcome for companies like navron and cowboy and bessemer who are investors we're doing the same thing for this next set of entrepreneurs. So it's Nate at Union Labs or unionlabs.com. I'm at Nate Williams at Twitter. And I would love to interact with any of your
0: audience. Happy to talk Turkey anytime. Well, this has been really good. You're really good, Nate. I really enjoy the conversation. And uh, I'm excited. I'm excited for you. I, I know you put, you. how many deals you've done? 10, nine deals? Ten I've deals? done nine deals so far. Yeah. Uh, so you got you still got some, a lot of firepower left. and That's uh, A lot of good companies coming your way, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, we're seeing great deal flow.
1: Um, we're co-investing with some of the, you know, really great, well-known funds, not only in San Francisco, but also in New York and Boston. And I think if you want a combination, my general partner, Chris, is a physicist by training. He was co-founder and CTO of August. He's extremely technical. And obviously, I've been focused on product development and product market fit for the past 15 years. So yeah, we, we'd love to meet with great people. And at the same time, you know, we're trying to make a more equal, a more inclusive, a more impactful venture community, you know, we're trying to solve big problems and something, you know, I'll get on my soapbox for one second is, you know, there's a bunch of these apps that we've created that sit on our phone that can keep us entertained. But at the end of the day, a lot of us that are parents are thinking about, you know, what kind of world are we giving our kids? And so yeah. the type of entrepreneur that wants to take a left turn or a right turn, maybe out of a Facebook, or, you know, a social networking or Twitter, or Stripe, and they actually wanna build something and to affect climate change or to affect safety and security or even aging in place. Those are the type of entrepreneurs we can help them understand where the opportunities are and to build a team de novo. So happy to do it and I'll continue to listen to your podcast and uh, pick up the phone and call Cruz whenever I need some help on the CFO side.
0: Awesome. All right, Nate, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So when your troubles are mounting In tax or accounting, you go to Cruise, Founders and Friends, it's Cruise Consulting, Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Olm.